Well, seriously, Ross did cover quite a bit of what I was going to say, and that's really interesting because we, like he said, I'm going to talk about this, this, and this, but then in listening to you, quite a few of the points I was going to make have been covered, which is good. However, life's got heaps of heartbreak. We've all got heartbreak. We've got, I mean, life is beautiful. There are little babies and sunny days and wonderful talks and flowers on the altar. And there's also boat people and political corruption and friends with cancer and losing partners to cancer and people who run over their own children and there's no escaping this. We're born and there's this huge immensity and in the end we die and we, we all deal with that in our own way. So the precepts are our own. We're given, we come to them, we're here, we're given these ideas and, and things to think about and sort of one of my main conclusions, and I've really thought a lot about this talk, is um, they're for you. You make it your own, you pick it up. And it, I've just been in Bali with Mary Ridwin, and I was asking her a Dharma point, and she said, these precepts, they're like a koan, and you don't sort of koan out with your head. She let me use this um, image that she gave me. She said, it's like a cat. You put it on your belly, and it sits there, and you don't think the answer to a cat, you just have it there with you. And so the precept, this precept is yours and you will, um, and, and what you bring to it will include, as Ross said, your own family history and your own biology and your own chemistry and the culture that you came from and what happened in your family of origin and all of the above. Um, I'm gonna throw in a quote from T.S. Eliot from the Four Quartets, humankind cannot bear very much reality. So because life is painful and we have grief and suffering and tragedy and feelings that we don't know what to do with, we medicate them. And people have done that forever. And you know, look back, the medieval times, whatever, and it always amuses me somehow that even people in jail can make a brew out of like three potatoes and an old tennis ball. <laughs> if we can get drunk, we'll get drunk. And so we do. And yeah, as Ross said, a, a beer with your son on a hot day can be a beautiful thing. However, I'm just gonna tell you a little bit of my own story and the way I've worked with this precept. Um, my, my parents were intelligent, creative, interesting, university educated, left wing, charming, had wonderful parties. They were both alcoholics. My father was the full blown alcoholic. He was um, sort of quite a public figure. He was a printer and a typographer and he mixed with lots of artists and everybody knew Bob Lowry and blah, blah. Um, he was a hopeless alcoholic. The people had set him up in businesses and he'd fail and he'd make the most beautiful, um, a poster for a concert, an artwork. Unfortunately, he made it the day after the concert because he was in the pub and he just got worse and worse. And in the end, and it was violent, it was horrible. I'll just give you a couple of images from my childhood. One is um, watching him pour sherry on my mother's hair and dragging her around the kitchen late at night. I would have been less than nine years old uh, because she wouldn't drink with him. So that's that wasn't pretty. And then in the end my mother left him 
and he killed himself. I was nine, so that was shite, basically. And my mother was a less obvious drinker. She was just, you know, had a job at the university and da-da-da. She also had a little bottle of sherry in her pocket a lot of the time. And I can remember one particularly um, dreadful evening. A, we'd been to dinner with some quite, um, he was a politician, you know, well, well-to-do people. And one, this is funny, not on the topic. My mother had a hearing problem and someone said to her, pass the butter, Irene. And she said, no, thank you. That was incredibly embarrassing when you're sort of 11. And then as we drove home, she drove up on the pavement. I remember that. And I just remember thinking, I'm not safe. This is my mother and I'm actually not safe. So it wasn't a great childhood, but it did have creativity and wonderful parties. And, you know, I was taught to think and read and my sisters were painters and all of those things. So what did I do about all of this? Oh, and that's right. And my mother, who hadn't had the very overt drinking problem, she got a horrible thing called Korsakovs, which people get when they drink too much, and it leaches the vitamins out of your brain, and it was sort of like Alzheimer's. First she had double vision, and a year later she was dead, and I was about 22. And what did I do? I got stoned. I got stoned for probably five years, give or take, and went to teacher's college and became a primary school teacher and <laughs> went to live in Sydney and da-da-da-da-da. And then I had some kind of a, an insight, which was that um, most of the people I knew who were getting themselves together weren't still smoking pot, they were going on retreats. And I remember I was in a late night bookshop in Sydney and I read about this place, what would a dharma you could do a 10 day insight retreat? And I went there and I did, well, I was basically hopeless because I couldn't, my mind wouldn't stay still. And I remember being in the car park and saying to this guy who was also in the car park, oh, could you give me a ride back to Sydney? I'm not really coping here. And he went, no, I came in on my bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> so I stuck out the retreat and, um, oh, long story very short, I got married and went and lived in a Theravadan Buddhist community for seven years and had a child. So, and again, I was so, um, loathe to give up my pot smoking that I knew it wouldn't be a very good idea to take dope onto the property. But I had these two joints left and I hid them in a jar outside the property. Could I ever find them again? No! <laughs> I looked long and hard many a time but I got into meditation and I knew it was useful and I did it. And yeah, So seven years completely sober and straight and that was alright. And then moving on, living in Perth with my second husband and he was sort of the kind of guy who could he could take a drink or two, and it wasn't a problem. He's the sort of man who could drink a coffee at midnight and fall straight to sleep. So I used, then I became like a social drinker, and it was just like a nice thing, and we did it with friends. But it was never my drug of choice, and I didn't really... The whole thing that Ross was talking about, about how it's such a cultural... You know, it's one of the lies, I think. So to me, capitalism is a lie. You know, buy more stuff and you'll be happy, and no, that's not actually true, and we're screwing the planet. And so I sort of don't buy that one. And I don't also buy the alcohol myth. It's glamorous, it's wonderful, it's, you know, you're a very cool person if you know your Chardonnays and all of that. Actually, it's a central nervous system depressant. It's a poison. Um, and it has those effects that we love, which we feel a bit loose and stuff, but it's affecting your limbic system and your cerebral. And it sneaks up on you. So even on an evening, you know, I just have one, and then you say, oh, I just have two, and then by the time you get home, you've had three, and you've left your casserole dish there, and you just feel a bit grumpy in the morning and don't really want to meditate. So it's, it sneaks in. And in my family, it snuck in a lot. And so, anyway, 
so for many years in that marriage, I was like a social drinker. But it was sort of in the end a sad thing because I'd go away on a, on a residency and my husband would buy a nice bottle of champagne as a sort of welcome home, my darling gift. And I, at a certain point, I didn't really want to do it. And I think it just stopped working for me as a pleasure. Like, it just wasn't anymore. Just like the last few times I smoked pot, you know, every 10 years I go, oh, come on, just old times sake. Found myself in a kitchen at midnight eating greasy roast potatoes. Couldn't remember I'd left my handbag. Well, I didn't need that anymore. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, the sort of the finding it a pleasure wore off. But in my family, most of us are still addicts in some way. So when I go back and visit my family, we're biggies, big comfort eaters, beautiful cooks and lovely, but not that great at moderating the desires to the point that you go, oh, they're kind of morbidly obese. Um, or drinkers, or recovered alcoholics who are still pretty screwed up. So we do addiction. So I've had to stare at that in the face now. You might think, oh, you're a bit of a smuggy. You know, you don't drink and you don't do recreational drugs. No, but I have my other tricks for getting away from my emotions because, um, and so do you. I don't know what yours are, but they might be, um, a lot of exercising, or they might be hurrying a lot, or they might be obsessively checking your phone, or they might be shopping when you don't actually need shit as a kind of recreation, or they might be eating too much or whatever, watching too much television. Now, as Ross said, you make it your own, and I don't believe in rules. Like, I don't say, I am a strict vegetarian. 99% of the time I am a strict vegetarian, but then I eat some meat because I feel like it. And I feel, as, for me, as soon as I make a rule, I'll want to do the other thing. So, so I don't actually have a rule that I cannot drink. But the last few times I did drink, I drank at a, at a 40th because I'd already paid for the meal and the wine and it was free and I liked champagne. And I was slightly anxious in a social situation and I had the glass of champagne, tasted good. But I still felt anxious. And then I turned around and knocked someone else's drink over because I'm a clumsy idiot and the wine didn't help me. And then when I drove home, I thought, oh, have I had too much? So I remember a Buddhist monk saying to me, if you're going to do it, work out how you feel before, see how you feel during, and see how you feel after. So I think that's good. And so, for example, a piece of chocolate cake can be the most beautiful thing that you sit and eat a piece of chocolate cake. Mm, what's life without cake? However, if late at night you're outside your fridge, you're hungry, lonely, angry and tired, eating two bits of chocolate cake to drown your sadness, you probably need to go and lie down and have a good cry or watch a funny movie or something. So, yeah. So that's just a little bit about things. Um, this is what Thich Han said about about the precept, and I guess this is where I've come to now a little bit. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I vow to cultivate good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family, and my society by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. I vow to ingest only items that preserve peace, well-being, and joy in my body, in my consciousness, and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. I am determined not to use alcohol or other intoxicants or ingest foods or other items that contain toxins such as certain TV programs, magazines, films, books and conversations. And he goes on. But he's talking about 
what I, what I took from that, amongst other things, is, as Pedro said one night when he was closing Azazenka, he said, you're not practicing just for yourself, you're practicing for everyone. And so the part of me that goes, oh, what the hell? Like, who really cares? You're going to die anyway, so just do whatever you like. It's, I think it's bigger than that. I think we are all connected really a lot. And one of the reasons, A, that I am sober, although I do love a good codeine when I've got a bad headache, because, oh, I've got a headache, goody, I can have a codeine. That would probably be my next drug of choice, um, is that in my family, as I said, we're very bad at the feelings. We, I see my beautiful family and they're all very creative and they're all intelligent and they're all artists and writers and architects. And, but we're not good at feelings. We, we're hard on them. And so my sister, when her partner was dying, said, how are you going? He goes, oh, Frank's a bit better. He put his pyjamas on. <laughs> Couldn't say. He's dying. And I'm in grief. Okay, that's fine. She was protecting herself. But when she sits down to meditate, because she has got a spiritual bend. She wanted to be a Quaker. And my father was very anti-religion and swore. He banged the table and said, there's no such fucking thing as fucking God. And my sister's like, oh, I only wanted to go to Quakers. So we were actually sort of steered against that. But she says when she sits down to meditate, she feels anxious. And I know, no, she just is anxious. And when she sits down, she feels it. So I've, in my own practice, I've, I'm trying to learn other ways to deal with my anxiety or my sorrow or my grief, which might be to draw or to write or to lie down on my bed and just relax with a hottie on me or to ring a friend and talk to them because I feel terrible. And also in my family system, I feel like if I can be what um, Philip Larkin called an affirming flame. So I look at my great nephew who's 10, his name's Taylor and he's softy with long hair and he's got his tragedies. His mother, my niece who's 40, has got a pretty much an incurable brain tumour and at the moment she's sort of in remission but he knows my mum's going to die probably. So he's got heartbreak and I feel I owe it to him. If he looks around the family and goes, oh, Grandpa's a bit weird. And at parties he starts swearing and they sort of get embarrassed and hurry him away or he starts talking crap or gets a bit argumentative. If he could look at me and go, oh, Auntie Bridgie's pretty cool. She, like, she, she's fun and she's interesting, but she does these other things like meditate and is sober. I feel that that's something that I can offer up. So just a couple of um, versions of the vows that people have, have said. So this is a friend in the Diamond Sangha tradition called Derek Ladane in New Zealand. And he pretty much went the Thich Nhat Hanh way. I take up the way of not giving or taking drugs, letting go of addiction, drink, drugs, junk food, junk TV, substances or experiences which cloud the mind. And in my own case, I said, I will not use drugs or alcohol to hide from my pain or to damage myself or other people. And so I practice with it every day when I know that I'm feeling a bit anxious and I'm checking my phone for no particular reason or, or whatever. And that's where I started from and really just saying, make it your own. And every day is a fresh moment. I don't think there's a fixed pos position. 
and there'd be times when to do something, watch a funny show or have a glass of wine might be just the perfect medicine and there'd be other times when perhaps it is not. I hope you've got something from this and um, yeah, see how it resonates with your own lived experience.